Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around and hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome to Race Theory. I'm Derek Cope and my wife, Alicia Cope, alongside me. Hi, everyone. We are, you know, in our first episode and it really is called uh, Driven by Design. So, you know, I guess that is really about, you know, our roots in racing and what it took really to get here and how driven I think uh, we as a family and, and myself uh, were to uh, to continue uh, in, in the realm of motor, motorsports. And, you know, I think, you know, I, I've always been pretty private and I've never really wanted to, um, you know, talk about, you know, my struggles and trials and tribulations. Uh, but I'm going to set the record straight here, uh, certainly, uh, about really what it took. I mean, I come from pretty humble beginnings, uh, both from a family standpoint, as well as our racing standpoint. And, and really, I mean, uh, you know, in this day and age, you know, it, it really is about a pocketbook and, you know, the silver spoons and the kids getting opportunities based on, you know, having money, finding money or having, you know, somebody spend money behind them and um, not always being the best of the best to have the opportunity. And uh, in contrast to where I really felt like what it took for us to get to that point, you had to be something special and you had to be proficient both in and out of the car. And so I'm going to touch on those things. Um, but, you know, I guess a lot of it really started from the standpoint of really of how did I become so driven or how, you know, how did I get the opportunity really to go to motorsports? And, you know, it, it is something that maybe a lot of people don't really know. And, uh, it was started in, in the early fifties with, uh, my father and his brothers, uh, Don, Jerry, and Guy. And they started in, uh, San Diego and in the, in the early infancy of drag racing. And they were, you know, I think, you know, <laughs> they started out as being motorcycle racing motorcycles as kids. And, uh, my father, uh, you know, not a lot of people know, I mean, he only had a ninth grade ed education. My uncle Jerry, uh, was the first one to actually graduate from high school. Uh, my uncle Guy did not as well. Uh, but they, uh, started drag racing and they were very proficient at it and, you know, really didn't know a lot about, uh, you know, race cars, but, you know, I think they, they worked hard. They listened the, they were, you know you know, visually watching what other people did and they, uh, they kind of paved their own, own way. And, you know, my dad, uh, you know, started at uh, Harbor tool and freight, you know, he was working in a tool and die company and they were building a lot of the early pieces for drag racing. Uh, you know, a lot of roller lifters, the very first actual roller lifters were coming out of there for that would go to Crower and, and, uh, Iskaderian and Crane. And, um, you know, they were, they were building those things and, uh, you know, pretty interesting to, to see their involvement and listen to my uncle Jerry, you know, I had the opportunity a couple of weeks back, uh, you know, for my uncle Jerry's birthday and we reflected on, you know, the early days, uh, and, you know, my father and, you know, my uncles and, and we talked about, you know, what they went through and their, their struggles themselves. And, um, you know, listening to, all the old stories of, of old drag race, which I love old you know, stories of drag racing in the early days, 
you know, the days of, you know, where racing was before what you hear about where it is to now. And, you know, they were <clears throat> running places like Ramona and Colton, in, which is in, you know, Southern California around the Riverside area, which is obviously where I started, uh, you know, running my first, uh, my cup race, but they were drag racing out of, you know, the, you know, the early San Diego areas there and building cars and, uh, working with, you know, guys that really, if you look at any of the old history books, were very instrumental and, in, you know, great names of drag racing. The, uh, the Bean Bandits, uh, Joaquin Arnett, Emery Cook, Art Chrisman. Uh, you think about all those names and, you know, I mean, Emery Cook drove for my father and his brothers <clears throat> and Emery was, you know, I mean, he's the one that taught Don Garlitz a lot about fuel systems, you know, one of the real pioneers in drag racing. And, you know, he was a personal friend and drove for, you know, uh, my dad and, uh, and Jerry and Guy. And, uh, you know, would, would go on to, you know, you know, some great things, their accomplishments in drag racing, you know, would die at an early age, you know, but, um, interesting guy. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's funny, you, you look at the history books and Joaquin Arnett and the you know, beach bandits and, uh, uh, you know, all those guys, it's, it's an interesting time and, um, how innovative things were and how racing really just escalated, you know, and it was all off of, you know, guys just thinking outside the box and being stimulated and pushing the envelope, you know, on at that time when, you know, all the stock parts, uh, were all you had to work with and, um, you had to make things. <clears throat> I remember Jerry talking to me about actually trying to make their first aluminum rods out of just flat, you know, at, at the tool and die shop, they had made a router and they actually were using a, an old router and just cutting a template of a block of flat stock aluminum to make aluminum rods. Because at that time they were boxing the old rods, you know, and what they call a box, a rod, stock rod, and just putting plate on a stock rod. And they went to these big aluminum rods. And then obviously, you know, uh, you know, the, the the other rods came in involved you know the forged aluminum rods came in you know and obviously um you know that kind of took a precedent over doing that but uh that just tells you how willing they were to go and do things outside the box but you know that's really how it started for them and you know they became friends with you know tommy ivo and uh you know they raced against the guys in the early days the you know that uh you know that made a name for themselves and you know, I listened to the stories. I remember going to Ramona and them talking about, you know, a guy that sticks in my mind to this day as a young kid thinking about John Wenderski and the, the, the Black Beauty, a car that I really loved the picture of. And I remember you talking about the Black Beauty. Yeah. I mean, this guy, John Wenderski, he was killed at Ramona. And I remember my dad and, and Jerry talking about, you know, them being in the staging lanes right there at the end where they would push out to go push the cars towards the, uh, the starting line. And, uh, you know, John Wendersky, uh, getting the thing off the racetrack there and the car turning over and hitting the, uh, the rock embutments there that, uh, they cut, you know, through the drag strip for, and, you know, just stories about things that, you know, just resonate and that you remember as a kid, you know, that have stuck with me. And so, you know, interesting times and, you know, how many people perished and, you know, what they gave to the sport and, I think, you know, my ultimate, I think excitement was the fact that my dad and Jerry, you know, they went off on their own and started to create the life for themselves and they wanted to race cars for a living. And that's what they did. Exactly what they did. They went on tour. They basically were, you know, racing for a living, leading a very nomadic lifestyle across the United States and uh, sending money home to my mother who was 
you know, home taking care of uh, us kids. And, uh, you know, it, it had to be a very committed relationship to be able to stay home and take care of all the kids. You now, know? just to be clear, she was up in the Pacific Northwest. No, she Not was in San time. Diego. No, she was in San Diego. We were still in San Diego and uh, I didn't, we didn't leave there until I was four. And so that was the early infancy of them traveling. And it was in the Pacific Northwest where they were actually racing that my dad uh, was offered a job by Walt Austin. <clears throat> and uh, that um, was a, a turning point for us because that's where, you know, they'd been sending money home and he came back and I think maybe realized at that point that, you know, he had a family to feed and he needed to have a more stable uh, situation that he could provide for his family. And so the decision was made at that point to uh, to migrate from San Diego uh, when I was four to uh, Tacoma, Washington, where we would reside for, uh, you know, the early stages of my life. So uh, interesting, you know, thing that, you know, uh, that, that happens, right? And I think your realization that you want to do something, uh, but you know, you, you don't. Right. And my dad, had, you know, he, he had, he had the racer mentality. I mean, he was the only, was the driver for, you know, for the, the Cope brothers racing team, you know, in the early days. And he was even burned really badly. I remember seeing those skin grafts. He must've been burned pretty badly. He was, he was out of the race car uh, for a long period of time. And, and that's when, you know, uh, they had to put other drivers in. And I remember, you know, a blast from the past that I still see, you know, things on the internet about, um, Tommy, the watchdog Allen who drove for my, my dad and his brothers and, uh, you know, still do what they call these cackle fests where they take the old nostalgia cars and start them up and, you know, crack the throttles and stuff. So just, um, you know, guys like that, that, you know, drove and, and kind of carried the, the, the torch for a while until my father got back in the car. But ultimately, you know, that was, uh, ended in, you know, the Pacific Northwest. And that's where my dad, you know, really ran the, uh, the top gas division with a twin motor top gas car, which was kind of unique at the time. Um, it was interesting because in the early seventies, there was only seven of them in the nation. Wow. Yeah. They had blown two blown Hemis in line. The driver sat behind the engines. And, uh, it was interesting because they was at that time, the guy that actually had designed that car, um, had built it with a coupler for two blown Hemis. And it was like a, a splined coupler that was, they were welded together and then kept the motors in time. And so they had to run the engines like about 10 degrees off in timing just to get them to physically uh, work together. But, you know, two blown Hemis at that time in line, which was uh, a sight to watch those cars run. And they would outrun a top fuel car to the eighth mile. Uh, and then, of course, the top fuel cars would, would blow by them there, but they were on gasoline instead of nitromethane and alcohol. So um, I remember those cars. It was a beautiful car. I mean, that car was pristine. Uh, it was all the body panels were anodized, not painted. And uh, I remember the car uh, in a lot of the pictures that we have today, you know, and, uh, you know, I remember I can this day, I can remember going and, you know, and being in the big panel truck, we had the GMC tr panel truck we had there that pushed the cars up the, up the, uh, the racetrack to fire them, you know, and how they would, you know, you know, put let the clutch out and how they would, you know, back into the, into the push truck and, and then they would fire off and then how they would, my dad would drive away. And I still have those visions of that. And, you know, um, you know, really was a, a unique time as a kid to be a, at that up close and personal, you know, aspect of racing. And, uh, I loved it. 
although I still wanted to play baseball. So I, I was going to say, not to take anything away from your dad, but talk a little bit about your mom and how she kept you very busy in baseball and, and other activities. Yeah, you know, at an early age, I mean, that's what I was doing. I, I My mom was taking care of the family and my dad was still racing uh, and running the speed center. Uh, so I was playing baseball and, uh, you know, we played football and my mom coached, you know, baseball, football, and, you know, was very instrumental in, in helping us, right? Just grow as universe, keeping us busy, keep us out of trouble. And uh, the stories I hear about Dolores, your mom, she was quite the spitfire, very spunky little Portuguese woman, barely what, five foot tall. And, and uh, didn't she knock you on your butt one day? Uh, yeah, you would bring that up, obviously. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, my mom, you know, I mean, she, uh, she didn't take any lip and, you know, obviously, uh, you know, I thought I was, you know, probably the greatest thing since sliced bread, you know, on the baseball field. Right. So I remember we were, you know, at the in park, you know, actually it was in Spanaway there at the ball field and my mom was coaching. And, uh, you know, I I mouthed off and was telling her she didn't know what she was talking about or whatever. And, you know, she um, I mean, she flat drilled me right in the mouth, knocked me on my <laughs> butt. And I mean, I was probably, I don't know, six, eight blocks home and I walked home. I was embarrassed so bad, you know. How times have changed. I would never, ever speak to my mom that way again. And, uh, you know, she set the precedent. And I think, um, you know, you knew then that uh, she ruled the roost and, uh, you know, she wasn't going to take that. And, um, you know, we don't have that today, obviously. But, you know, that's something that stuck in my mind. And I remember it vividly to this day, you know. But, you know, I, I really respected my mom for the fact that she, she, she put the time in. I mean, she took us to, you know, I mean, we were playing in, you know, golf and you know, she'd take us and drop us off at the golf course in the morning. We played unlimited golf, you know, all day long and, you know, and, and you know, we just, we stayed busy and she was supportive. I mean, my dad though would not even come to the baseball games because, you know, my mom in the stands, I mean, she was a maniac. I mean, <laughs> very protective. Oh God. I mean, she would, I mean, rant and rave and I mean, foul mouth towards the umpires and, you know, dad was embarrassed. He would not go and listen to that, you know, and, uh, but she was for her kids and she was going to let it be known that, you know, she was going to be heard, you know, and, uh, but, um, yeah. I'm so proud of your racing as well when you started racing too. Yeah, she was. I mean, she was just, you know, I mean, she loved both of us and, you know, she loved my, my, my sister Tamara and, you know, she was supportive of what we ever did. I mean, my sister played uh, soccer and she was a soccer coach and she was behind that as well. So, you know, uh, and, and again, I think, you know, she still allowed my dad to do what he was doing and that was, you know, still race and do those things, but she was taking care of, uh, of the kids and, uh, that's what I wanted to do, you know, and I remember, you know, getting to the older when I was 14, I mean, my dad was like, look, you know, you gotta, you gotta come to the shop. We gotta work. You know, we had, the, they actually had gone from the speed center to owning Cope brothers racing engines. And, you know, we had a small shop and that's, uh, we all had to pitch in. And I think that was, um, a real time when you really learned work ethic. Well, my dad was, you know, instilled that I think in all of us at an early age is that we had to do our part. And, you know, I remember, you know, we were down there tearing engines apart in what we called the dungeon. I mean, this place was, I mean, it was, you know, a nice glass front, you know, speed center with a counter and selling parts and stuff. And then you had the, the dungeon in the back, which there was no windows and you walk down, it was cold and you had the, you know, the dry sump, the old sump tank there and you tore motors down and you just, you just come out filthy. And, 
you didn't see the light of day until, you know, lunchtime. And uh, then dad said, you know, you got to learn to grind camshafts. And so here I am, 14, I'm grinding camshafts and doing the parkerizing <laughs> on the camshaft. Can you imagine a 14-year-old doing that today? Yeah. I mean, you know, back there, I mean, you're slaving away. You know, I learned how to do roller cams. And I mean, you're parkerizing cams and you're rolling them up in, you know, and in, uh, in, in this uh, material, right? You know, and uh, you're marking what they are. And, you know, and we were selling cores and stuff and, you know, to all the other shops around, right? Grinding the camshaft. So, you know, I was vested in, uh, in motor, you know, in the motorsports side and, you know, and the family business, right? And, uh, but I still wanted to play baseball. And that was really where my mindset was at. And so I was very driven to do that. And even though I had all these motorsports opportunities uh, around me, you know, and my dad won the division sixth NHRA, uh, top gas division championship and pretty much retired and ended that. And I think really resigned himself that, you know, racing had as a driver and as that business model had to end and they kind of ventured off into building racing engines and they were doing them for stock cars, uh, for the likes of a team out of, um, you know, Tacoma, they're called the lakes drywall special where actually Jackie Johnson. Uh, was working and ultimately would have a relationship with Jackie in years to come. Oh, I love Jackie. Yeah. And that was really how it started there. We were doing motors for them. And my dad was very instrumental in that Winston West series at that time. And, uh, you know, that was, that was early on. And, um, but you were still playing baseball hmm. and, um, I know you probably won't bring this up, but you were quite good. You, um, were a year younger than everyone, started school at four years of age, and so graduated at 17, and were being scouted pretty heavily by area colleges, pretty much had your pick. And um, your dad was um, pretty vocal about going to a small school, right? So you did s settle on uh, on Walla Walla. Yeah, I think, you know, at that time, I think you were 17, you know, you're a little naive. I'm a year behind, you know, physically as well. And I think my dad was like, look, you know, you have opportunity to, to get a college education. And I think that, you know, him only getting ninth grade education was kind of like, that was like something that I think he was adamant about that, you know, look, we don't have the money to send you to college. <clears throat> you need an education. You need to have a, a what if mentality. And I think that's why I always had that was because he said, look, if things don't always go the way you think they're going to go. And he said, you got to have something to fall back on. You have to have recourse. And he said, just let's get the college education. If you're any good, and good enough, he said, they're going to, you're going to sign, you're going to, you know, in, in college or out of college or, you know, go in the draft. And he said, you know, and at that point you have an education to fall back on, right? You know, you never know how long it is you'll have a career in baseball and, you know, you don't know how true those words really were. Right. And, um, at the time you take the, you know, the scholarship, you go to college and lo and behold, uh, you have a life ending career-ending uh, knee injury. And before the injury, I know you're going to go into that a little bit, um, you were being scouted by some professional baseball teams at that point. So your dreams um, of realizing that lifelong goal of being a professional baseball player were definitely, you know, there in front of you at yeah, the I mean, time. They were viable. I think you had, you know, the Cubs and the Orioles were there. And, you know, I'd gone to Florida, you know, to a, a camp there, uh, you know, in Pompano Beach. And, you know, you just you just feel like that the opportunity is there and that, you know, you can do it. And, um, you know, but again, you know, in those forms of sports, right. You have escalations. That's like the, the truck series the Xfinity series and the cup series, right. You got, you know, you got triple a, you know, you got, you know, major leagues, triple a, double a and single a. So, I mean, there are tiers and you just don't really know where you'll end up in those, but 
um, yeah, that's all I thought about really. And, um, but it is short, it ended shortly. And I think, uh, you know, you don't really, you realize how prophetic, you know, some of those things your dad said, you know, come to be, uh, when you're sitting there and, you know, you're driving home and you've got a knee swelling up and you just had a complete blowout. You don't really know that, but you realize that it's, it's major because my knee is like, you know, four times the size of what it was. And you went immediately into the hospital once you got home. <laughs> yeah. We immediately made, you know, uh, with a neurosurgeon and, and, uh, uh, you know, to see exactly what the situation was and went in and got operated on. But, you know, you got to think about that it was 1979 and, uh, it was really antiquated. I think, you know, of really what, you know, what they could do back then. This was everything. I mean, medial collateral anterior cruciate ligaments were severed. Meniscus was shredded. They do an actual, what they called a hamstring transfer for stabilization of the knee. And I was in a, a full length cast. Well, didn't you wake up on the operating table? Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> Something that, uh, to this day I, I found, uh, you know, like alarming. Uh, but yeah, you know, you woke up, I don't think they realized how bad it was when you went in. Right. And, uh, so it was supposed to be like a three or four hour operation and end up being like six hours. And I woke on the t operating table, which, you know, it was unheard of, I think, you know, and they couldn't really put me back under, but, um, you know, I, I remember waking up and, you know, seeing, um, uh, you know, white gauze going in and red gauze coming out in that big, you know, silver you know, deal above me and, um, you know, asking them what's going on. And, you know, they said, look, you know, we've had some struggles and it's got a lot longer and a lot more damage than we thought. And you, know, you just have to hang in there with us, you know, and I just felt like I had a big hole down there. They were beating on the sides of this thing and, you know, pain started coming in. And I remember going to, uh, you know, to recovery after that. Well, and your family recalls you, um, and you were a pretty quiet kid and you were screaming, um, someone get me some bleepity bleep meds right now. <laughs> and the nurses came running. I mean, it was, um, it was probably some pretty bad pain you were in at the time. Yeah. I, you know, I remember, you know, in recovery, uh, I'd been there for quite a while and, you know, of course I, I could feel and have some pain on the operating table. By the time I got in there, they really didn't want to give me anything, I don't think. And I said, uh, you know, you know, you need to get a hold of the doctor. And, you know, the nurse like, well, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll we'll see if I can find him. And I told her, I said, look, I will flip and get off this table and kill you <laughs> if you don't find that doctor and get me some medicine. I said, I'm not putting up with this, you know? So, you know, sure enough, uh, I remember <clears throat> them giving me something and, and I remember coming down the corridor and I see my mom and Darren and Daly and I'm just screaming. I'm, I'm throwing the upward out. I mean, I must've put the bombs out cause my mom's like trying to, you know, shut me up, grab my mouth, you know, and uh, they get me and they give me morphine and I'm out. Right. So, you know, I was supposed to end up waking up there, but you know, obviously uh, I had to, you know, go through a lot to get there. But, you know, at that point, you know, from that point on, I think I really knew you know, that I would never be the same, you know, I was a catcher and I mean, I had a unique, you know, uh, squatting, you know, position. I got rid of the ball quick, you know, I was very reliant on, you know, my knees and doing that, you know, so it all ended and, uh, you know, off we went. So, uh, but that kind of was the deal where it kind of put me in towards, um, you know, uh, stock car racing because I was sitting on the couch, you know, with a cast on from my hip to my toe and watching soap operas. And here's my brother got this, uh, car that Steve Hemholz had given him, uh, this old Chevelle, which is a late model sportsman car. And that really was, you know, the start of us going towards stock car racing and Darren's doing that. And I mean, I'm driving the old Vega down there with a crutch to go kind of help out the shop, to get out of the house, just to get, 
done watching General Hospital and One Life to Live, you know, <laughs> and I'm thinking like, I got no life to live here, you know, so, uh, you know, here I am and down there and, uh, you know, old Steve Hemholz had given us this old car and uh, the guys from Lakes Drywall had, you know, come in and put her in primer. I'm, oh, and what was the name of that car? Uh, we called her the Gray Ghost. The Gray you know, Ghost, yeah, that's she right. Was, yeah, she was all gray primer and we were out practicing at Spanaway Speedway when ultimately go to uh, to Yakima where we would run, you know, a few races that year. And that was 1979. And uh, Dan Daly, who is still is the only guy that works with Darren today at Cope Brothers Racing Engines, lifelong friend. He was crew chiefing and remember Darren breaking a spindle, going off into the track and, you know, and uh, all the dirt and ash, you know, from Mount St. Helens. And Daly takes a big, you know chalkboard up to the end of the track and has on that you know you're off the track <laughs> and here comes darren walking up you know with his helmet and goggles and dirt and you know everything and weeds sticking in and out of his mouth and you know just the <laughs> things you remember right you know no spotters back then no spotters back then you know it was the struggles right but uh, a lot of fun and uh, my dad getting underneath her and i remember him welding up that oil pan that darren had drug off the thing and burning himself and him cussing and carrying on and um but you know what that really was the end, you know, uh, or the, the beginning, the beginning of the end, right. For, uh, for us knowing what paths we were going to take. And I think it was a unique time because I remember that was that winter after we ran that car, a few races there that, you know, I realized this was something that I, I really wanted to do. And my dad I sitting down with us. That is a very pivotal moment. You, um, you've been interviewed many, many times and people ask what really made you decide to go into NASCAR. And I remember your dad um, saying how he sat you and your brother down and asked you that question. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was, it was a turning point. I think, you know, my dad, I think ultimately really wanted us, one of us to race. And uh, Darren, I, you know, Darren wanted to, you know, play slow pitch and, you know, chase women and have fun, be at the lake, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, dad, I want to do this. And he's like, well, if you do this, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to put every ounce of effort you have into it. And he said, you know, we don't have the resources. We don't have the money. You're going to have to do a lot of this yourself. You're going to have to be well-rounded, you know, and you're going to have to work on the motors, work on the car. And I said, I, I don't care. I want to do this. And I think that was the point that I, I really knew that I was going to put every ounce of my being in this. And, uh, and that's where, that's where it started. And that's where I began my my apprenticeship. And, um, and really that came with a lot of, of sacrifice. Um, you chose to delay family and, and, um, um, girlfriends, even marriage at that time. And, um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that. Cause I think, um, that also is something that, um, you know, kids need to hear if they truly want to make this a priority. Well, I think, like I say, it was a turning point for me and I knew that, you know, I wanted to make something of myself. I wanted something more. And I felt like that I, I had to fill a void in my life. You know, baseball had been really what I had in my mind. And this touched something inside of me. It touched every emotion you had. I mean, it thrilled you. It scared you. It, it did everything, right? And that intrigued me. And I knew that this was what I was meant to do. And I wanted to do it badly. And I think, you know, that's when I, I set the 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 thing forward. And that's where I would wake up at six in the morning. I lived at home. I wake up at six in the morning and I'd go to work from nine to, you know, for, and work till nine o'clock on, on motors and racing and stuff and the race cars and then nine to five thirty for dad and then go back to work on the race cars after that. So 
that's kind of where, where things started, you know? So, uh, we'll go into, you know, I guess where things progressed, you know, from 1980 to 1990, you know, the time span that it took 10 years to, to win the biggest thing in stock car racing. And that would be the Daytona 500 and, uh, you know, what it took and, um, how hard and the struggles it was. And, uh, you know, like you said, what you had to give up, uh, and commit to, to make that happen. So, uh, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, a couple of weeks, you know, ago, you know, obviously some exciting things were happening in, uh, in motorsports. Uh, you know, uh, we had the TA program there at, uh, at, uh, VIR and, uh, you know, TA two, uh, deal where, you know, Brent Cruz, uh, you know, um, would go on to, uh, to win his third event there. Uh, so some exciting times for us there. I mean, that was his third win and, uh, you know, uh, talk a little bit about, you know, what you, uh, what you felt, you know, uh, as far as, I guess, you know, from what Brent has done over the course of the year for us. I think Brent is just an incredible talent. Obviously we've been in driver development for a long time. That's, you know, when you and I were just dating, that's what we were doing. And uh, so we've seen a lot of up and comers come and go, some with talent, some with money and talent, some with uh, just money <laughs> and no talent. We've had uh, kind of the gauntlet. And I've got to say, um, this kid is really special. He has an amazing amount of maturity. He's so young. I mean, only 14 years old um, and uh, won three times this year. But that first win at Road America, that is, um, you know, something I will never forget because it didn't start, um, all peachy. It definitely had its challenges. And I remember him sitting in the car right before we're supposed to grid for the actual race. And we'd struggled, um, with that car, you know, the whole weekend. And, um, right before he's ready to go, um, we, we can't pull out, have to pull, push that car back in. And people are just, the crew are just flying around that car with tools and wrenches and trying to figure this out. And Brent is just sitting there cool as a cucumber. And I remember thinking to myself, this kid's the real deal. He's already got this natural savvy. Um, and uh, he's, uh, he's very humble, even though he's incredibly talented, um, has won in pretty much everything he sits in. He definitely has this um, innate ability to get the job done no matter what. Yeah. I mean, we know obviously that weekend he sits on pole, uh, but we did have, you know, some struggles with the car and, uh, you know, right before the racer, I mean, I'm out there with the other, uh, gentleman, you know, up on the grid and then here comes the car running up through there. Right. And like you say, you know, he goes out there and he leads the thing wire to wire after having, you know, a lot of frantic things, you know, transpire before, you know, the race starts. Right. And you would think it might unnerve, you know, a young kid, you know, that young, but, yeah, I mean, you know, he yeah, is, nerves anybody. Any well, sure. driver would have been screaming, yelling. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, definitely, uh, it was uh, it was very odd to see that in a, in a driver. Now, I was really excited for you. I mean, you know, because you know we've been racing together, you know, and we've always I always wanted you to feel what it was like to be in victory lane. You know, obviously, I've I've won you know, races and, you know, to feel what that's about, the exhilaration and you know the you know the emotion of it and. You know, I think that was your first opportunity to being vested in something and, you know, having it come to fruition and winning the race. I mean, obviously from winning the pole, then winning the race wire to wire and you get into, you know, to be in victory lane. And I can hear the screaming of you, you know, in any of the videos <laughs> we had. So, you know, I mean, I know it's a special time for you. It really was. Um, that was um, something that I will never forget. And um, standing there, you know, with the sunshine on your face, and like you've you've said many times before, when you've been in victory lane and in, in um, you know all the series, um, 
but especially the Daytona 500, you know, just having that feeling of exhilaration and, and watching your team all come together because it really was such a team effort. And then uh, seeing Brent come out of that car and, and uh, stand on the podium. Now, we'd been on the podium several times that year. You know, he'd um, kind of been cheated out of a win um, at Mid-Ohio because uh, it ended on a caution. And so it was kind of like, okay, is this going to be the one? Is this going to be the one? And, um, you know, he just dominated that race. And um, But still, you know, the butterflies at the end, is something going to happen? Is he going to get off track if some, someone going to try to wreck him? And then when he crossed that finish line, number one, there's uh, no feeling better than that. Yeah. I think, you know, again, you know, we, we've been in driver development. We've seen, you know, young, talented you know, people come in, you know, the, you know, the pitfalls and, you know, the struggles you go through with those things. But, you know, you're, you're talking about a kid that, you know, is, he's a world karting champion. He comes from Nick's, uh, you know, program, Nick Tucker's program with Nitro Motorsports in a karting side, right? You know, and uh, so, you know, proficient there, you know, and uh, being able to come up and continue on with his uh, his apprenticeship, you know, and going into the TA2 program, you know, and still being with Nick and, and Johanna. Um, but, you know, being a, being a part of that, right, and seeing what he did from the first time we went to Sebring, you know, and seeing what he was doing, he was just manipulating the car, but still making, you know, errors and things that we could help, you know, you know, help him with. Right. And then to see the escalation, you know, and then, you know, I mean, he was he only just gets 14 things. at the time. Right. Yeah. And yeah, he just gets you it mention right. Things to him and he just automatically gets it and yeah. applies it. Yeah. He just implements it immediately. Right. And, um, it's just comes so instinctive for him, but you know, it really does, I think, come from the fact that he's been in a race car, you know, from for a very long period of time in the karting program, then on up, you know, and running midgets and sprints and, you know, the, the micros out at Millbridge and things, you know, but, you know, he's obviously now fortunate because he has got, you know, he's part of the Toyota development program. And, and that's the unique thing about Nitro Motorsports, I think, is because, you know, they have everything, you know, pretty much from karting all the way on up and we're working to, you know, to get to the higher levels. Right. But, you know, that development program really does so much for them. You know, they're in simulators all the time. They're working out, they have the nutrition behind them with Toyota. So it's a pretty totally vertically integrated program from them to getting everything that they need to really showcase their potential as they move along and develop them. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, he's, he's certainly, you know, making that happen and making inroads because he's racing at 14, 15 years old now against guys that have got a wealth of knowledge and experience and putting, you know, putting them, holding them to the fire and beating them. And I mean, pushing them to the levels that, you know, it, it has to be a bit alarming for them. Right. So, um, yeah, it, it's exciting to be a part of that and to see it and, uh, and visualize it and listen to it and, and to see the calmness and, and how he, you know, how he deals with it all. Right. Which is totally different than you see a lot of other people in my, in my opinion. Right. Right. And I think too, um, not to take anything away from Brent cause he's super talented, but you know, let's talk a little bit about how things have changed, you know, even in the last five years, simulation has just come leaps and bounds. And these kids are coming up in, like you said, go-karts and other disciplines. And, you know, whereas um, when you were first getting into racing, you had an opportunity maybe to race 16, 17 times a year. Now these kids are racing every day, every weekend in every series. And, you know, their parents, um, you know, are able sometimes um, and with proper funding to put them into every kind of um, cart and car imaginable. And um, the simulator, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, you have this homemade one here that you just love, but, you know, no offense, baby, but, uh, you know, it, it doesn't even hold a candle to some of these Sims that like, um, 
the last cup driver we had, um, had the simulator that simulates everything from the vibration in your butt to the visualization of the track. So these kids are really getting an opportunity to look at the track hundreds of times before they even get there where, um, you know, drivers like yourself and those, you know, coming up in the eighties, nineties, even the early two thousands didn't have anything close to that. Well, I think that's the <clears throat> the difference now is that these kids have so much um, available to them. You know, iRacing has done a lot of, of things that have been very, you know, I think progressive and innovative to help give kids times to, you know, to physically learn how to find the, the racetracks themselves, right? And physically know how, where the race, where the corners are and work on the racecraft and the, all those things. They don't feel the actual car themselves as much, but you know, now the other simulators do do that for them, right? So, you know, opportunities are given, you know, now for them at an earlier age. And I think, you know, racing has changed from the standpoint that, you know, there are, I mean, a lot of these kids now, especially in the upper levels, right? It is a pay to drive type of scenario now, much like IndyCar and things are, right? Where you have to find funding, bring funding to get an opportunity to get a seat. There was that in the early days of, of uh, Cup Series, you know, on a few of the, the independent teams, right? Like DK Ulrich and some of those guys where you brought money, you drove a car and there was no you know, guidelines to how you, you know, or, or parameters or restrictions on driving the car. You just bring money, you get to drive, right? But, um, you know, that whole dynamics changed now. So it really, in my opinion, is not like, it's not always about being the best of the best anymore. Definitely not. It is now about how much funding you can bring to be able to maintain the business model for the company as a business. And it is a business and you have to treat it as such. And we've had to do the same, uh, you know, over the years as well, you know, so everything really has changed and uh you know but it's still providing a good opportunities for these young drivers and there are opportunities that you know have been given for drivers that maybe haven't had the opportunities you know like for instance josh berry with you know junior motorsports right who has suffered you know in the trenches and then you know has been very good at the late model areas and then finally gets an opportunity to showcase and, and has he has made it happen so you know you got to give you know, uh, you know, kudos to those guys too as well. Right. But, um, you know, still interesting to see these young kids do what they're doing, uh, you know, at this level, you know, and look at, look at Ben Meyer, right. I mean, Ben, same age, what, mm -hmm. 14, 15, 14, 15 years old doing all the things oh, no, he does. Than that, yeah. 13, he's, he's 13. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, doing what he's doing in the stadium truck deals, doing with that, uh, Pat Travis Pastrana um, Nitro Rally uh, Racing deal. So, I mean, making a name for themselves at you know at time frames where they shouldn't be. I mean, you go out and you beat Travis Pastrana, you're doing something. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, those are the things that are exciting to watch and pay attention to, and that's what we want to bring to this podcast is to you know maybe you know talk about certain things that are happening out there that you know you may have interest in. Maybe not just all NASCAR, not just drag racing, not just you know you know, other things, but, you know, touch on all those things. Right. So I think those are the exciting things that we get an opportunity to do and touch on and bring some knowledge to, and maybe from a personal standpoint of the teams that we're involved in, maybe what we obviously, you know, are privy to through our other relationships. So, um, I'm hopeful that, you know, you will continue to tune in and, and listen to what, you know, we bring to the table because, you know, we are going to do a little storytelling, but we're also going to touch on the intricacies, you know, and, uh, you know, what's happening. Like, you know, look at a couple of weeks past, right. You know, with the Bubba Wallace thing, right. Yeah. That was uh, a big one. That was a big one at Las Vegas when he hooked, uh, you know, Kyle Larson, right. And, uh, getting the suspension and, uh, and rightfully so, 
you know, absolutely. in my opinion. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know? And I don't think it came quick enough. Um, you know, and, and you and I had a differing opinion on this. I know when it first happened, you know, I think um, it shouldn't be that drivers are shamed into making a statement. Um, obviously, Bubba made a mistake and should have owned up to it right away. And in my opinion, the penalty wasn't severe enough. And uh, I think uh, uh, Kyle Petty felt the same way I did. Yeah, you you and Kyle had the similar the similar response, right? I, I think, but you know, I, I look back at and it's twofold, right? You can look at it from both sides of the fence, and I think I look at it more from a a business standpoint, from a sponsor, because I I've represented so many companies, and I know how vested you are as an extension of the company, how much equity you put in, and you know, the fans want to see the drivers at the races, but there has to be a point that it you know is too far, right? But yet. You know, at the same time, you know, sponsors, you know, they pay for it. They have to fund You're it. You're saying you don't want to take them out of the car. Taking them out of the car, I think it's a difficult thing, but there has to be something. Whether they, they take them out for a race, they do something, the fines, I don't know, something. I, I, I agree with that, right? You can't keep doing what they're doing, especially with this race car. This next-gen car, you know, this thing has got issues and it's hurting drivers. And I knew it was from the start. Um, so I can see where... You know, something has to be done, but you know, it's a difficult, that's a difficult area for NASCAR. And I do not want to wish I would want to be in their shoes because they have to look at it from every perspective. Right. And, um, they have a business to run. They got sponsors to deal with and they have drivers and they have to keep these drivers safe as well. So, but honestly, daunting. I feel that's where NASCAR should have come in. They are representing sponsors as well title sponsors, NASCAR sponsors, um, and the fans in general, and a lot of, of kids that are watching this. And, you know, NASCAR drivers are their heroes. They're their mentors. And what kind of a mentor does that and then not apologizes for it? Now, obviously, mistakes are made, you know, hot-headedness, arrogance, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it needs to be addressed right away. And it needs to be addressed across the board. NASCAR is not good at making sure that the penalties are the same for everyone. Yeah. Well, you don't want this to be, you know, uh, the normal thing, you know, in response and, you know, for a race car driver, a professional race car driver, they are role models. They are out there. They're being, you know, looked at and emulated by young kids. Right. So I think that they have to take a step back and conduct themselves in a better, in a better manner. Right. I mean, first of all, you are on national television, you're out in front of millions of people and, you know, you can't go out, show your ass like that. Right. Mm -hmm. And you got, you know, he has, for instance, he has McDonald's on it. Right. A major brand. Right. So I think, you, they have to, their, you know, their passion, their, you know, frustration, all those things have to be channeled to some degree. But you know what? Maybe they need to implement better, you know, scenarios that where people get to the driver sooner when they think they're going to get to that point and they physically stop them. So I just think there's a lot of things to be looked at, right? But, you know, again. Um, well, things have changed. Remember the days of uh, boys have at it. Well, yeah, I mean, and now you know, all of a sudden, I remember mm -hmm. Jimmy Spencer, Kurt Bush. I mean, Jimmy Spencer just poked, uh, knocked, uh, old Kurt Bush right in the mouth, you know, but <laughs> you know, certain guys weren't going to take stuff. Right. And, you know, we had our run-ins, we had our things. Right. But at the same time, you know, things have changed social media, you know, the amount of backlash of that, the sponsor takes, the drivers takes, the teams takes everybody. There's a lot more out there now. I mean, Back when I was driving in the nineties, we didn't have cell phones. So you didn't have the same types of things, you know, that these guys have. So again, a lot more to be looked at, a lot more to be addressed at, and we're going to touch base and we're going to talk on those things more as we go along, because it really is interesting when you look at all the things that a driver, a race team, an owner, you know, a sponsor have to go through. So yeah, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a tough thing. And with this next gen car, 
there's a lot more to talk about as well. And I think, you know, in our next episode, we'll touch more about, you know, the races, the next gen car, some of the, the elements that that car is doing and, and hurting drivers, um, drivers having to sit out for the first times, which, you know, back then when we got hit and I had a concussion, we were back in the race car. I mean, I, I could have looked at your cross side and still drove that car. I mean, that's what you would do. Well, driving with broken ribs. Yeah. Driving with um, a broken leg. Broken sternum. Yeah. You name it. We did it, right? But I think, you know, nowadays, you know, this thing is like hitting the concrete walls back then. Now with the soft walls and having this type of uh, concussions and the energy that's actually being absorbed by these drivers is significant. So, you know, it, it really is, you know, uh, things that we have to address and we have to talk about the race car, really about why that's doing it, you know, and, um, you know, what could have been done or prevented, you know, and we'll touch on all those things. And I remember at the, when we first started getting those next gen parts in with Starcom Racing, the first thing you said was there's no crush panels in these cars. There's no place for the energy to go. These cars are going to hurt these drivers. These cars are too rigid. And um, sure enough, um, you were like a prophet. That's definitely what's happened. Well, you could see it. I mean, the bulkheads in these cars, you know, um, I've been around, you know, Dave Feud building race cars and, and Steve Levitt building cars. We've had, you know, you know, twist fixtures, everything, you realize what, you know, rigidity does. And this car has bulkheads on each end of the, of the center section and, you know, the beefiness of the tubing in the, in the front rear clip. So you knew that there was going to be a lot of energy going to the driver and that's always detrimental. So again, exciting things to talk about later on, but, uh, you know, I look forward to, you know, the next episode. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll hope you guys will tune back in and, uh, and, uh, and pay attention to what we have to say. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun and uh, hope we've provided some value for you this episode, but we'd love to hear from you, your feedback on this one. Also, any topics um, you would like us to address and any questions that you may have about something that we've talked about. And I'm uh, going to go more into Derek's story every time and um, maybe a little bit more about marketing and relationships, but please, we'd love to hear from you. So we have social media handles at... Derek Cope, double zero on Instagram, Health Coach Cope on Instagram. And then we both have Facebook pages under Elisha Cope, Derek Cope. And um, thank you so much for tuning in. And we can't wait to talk to you next time. See you then. Thank you so much for listening. Did this episode give you some value? If so, please follow us on Facebook at Derek Cope and Instagram at Derek Cope double zero. And leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.